Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. This week, we'll find out if the magic of Hogwarts has come alive in our own home kitchens, or if we need a little more work on our spells and incantations. We'll also introduce an old-fashioned Victorian dessert that appears in more than one of our favorite novels. And we'll take a closer look at some recipes and reveal a few secret ingredients you might not expect to find in your dessert. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, our Facebook group is exploding with activity. I love it. It's something new all the time from all over the world. The one I wanted to specifically call out today because it was so much fun was the Pi Day celebrations. Yes. So Pi Day is celebrated on March 14th, otherwise known as 314. And a couple of pictures and posts that I saw from our listeners, yeah. Lauren made the fresh pear pie. That's back from episode 112. So great. That pie has just been a win with everyone who makes it. Yeah, it's still in my mind occupying the dessert to beat for the season three blue ribbon. Me too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Taryn made one of her own recipes. That was a raspberry lemon chiffon. It was so pretty. It just looked so much like spring to me. Didn't it? Yeah, so light and fluffy. Sarah made some PB&J hand pies and some sweet potato curry crust mini pies. You know how I love my minis. I know, girl after your own heart there. Yeah. Meredith made a blackberry basil, and I love that idea of having that um, unexpected herb in that pie. Yes. Karen made a blueberry lemon, and Heather went all out. She made the fresh pear pie, a blueberry rhubarb, a pumpkin, and a triple berry crumble. <laughs> I want to be Heather's neighbor. That is fantastic. And that's more pies than many people make at something like Thanksgiving even. Didn't she also make pizza that night? Because it's like, a, it's the whole day for her. Heather. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fully committed to pie day celebrations. Finally, I wanted to call out listener Thea, a girl after my own heart. She made a banana cake because she had a lot of ripe bananas. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I didn't want the cake to feel left out. So way to go, Thea. <laughs> Well, Andrea, in that same vein, we've had so much activity on our Facebook page. Likewise, over on our Instagram, that has been so much fun to see. If you are not following us, we are at Preheated Pod. Yeah. Here's what's been going on there. We had at the Dessertivore made the milk chocolate pots. That was just very recently back in episode 116. Yeah. At Lawyer Jen made the salted chocolate rye cookies, also from Crazy for Chocolate Month. And episode 115, Mm -hmm. at Steph Hirsch made the Black Bottom Oatmeal Pie, episode 113. And then Andrea, those are all very recent episodes, but we love it when people explore further in our back catalog, just like at Ostara Bakes did with my season two blue ribbon, the Caramel Banana Cake, Prince Harry's. From episode 77. I thought that particular picture that Ostara Bakes posted was so pretty because when I made my caramel banana cake, I did it in a sheet pan and cut it in squares. 
Yep, me too. And this one was cut more like, you know, made in a circle pan and cut like a cake or a pie in a wedge, a triangular wedge. And the frosting on top was so pretty. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I didn't even think of doing it this way. And it turned out so gorgeous. So thank you, Ostara Bakes, for giving us that idea. Yeah, it's fantastic inspiration for us. And that was very beautiful and different presentations. So if you are on Instagram, you can do us a huge favor by tagging your pictures with hashtag preheated podcast. That way it comes up in our feed as well, Andrea, and we are made aware of them. Is that right? That's right. And we want to make sure we don't miss any of your beauties because they're so exciting and inspiring. Yes. So however you are baking along, we love to see it on Instagram or Facebook. And you can always send us an email too at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com. We, we love to know you guys are out there baking along. Yes, we do. This week, we made the sausage rolls from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. This came from an adorable website called the Little Library Cafe. Stefan, I think you're quite familiar with sausage rolls living over there in London. Is that correct? Is this sort of a, a very common sort of snack or lunchtime item? I'm a little confused by them, I must admit. I don't know when to eat them. <laughs> yes, it's really a way of life. Uh, so. <laughs> I think English people would just tell you that sausage rolls are applicable whenever and wherever you are. Okay. The funny thing, and we'll post it in the show notes, I'd sent you an article about the proper way to eat a sausage roll. And they were saying, do not dress this up. There's no need to have a side salad. Yes. But you must serve it piping hot. And if you bring these out at your buffet party, you will be running the gauntlet. You will not make it to the buffet table before the sausage rolls will be snatched off your platter. It was a very funny article. I know. I loved that. And it did make it sound more like a sport, really, than cooking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And then, Andrea, you may not be aware, but almost every Christmas season, the UK crowns a number one Christmas single, and I mean a song. Okay. So if you remember in the movie Love Actually, one of the characters, he was obsessed with having the number one single, and it was that love is all around song, Christmas is all around. Do you remember that part of the movie? Oh, I remember it. And if I was braver, I could even sing it for you. Right <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, someday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Listeners start the online petition for that now. So that's um, that's exactly what happened in real life this Christmas. And there was the number one Christmas hit was called We Built This City on Sausage Rolls. And it was the classic Starship <laughs> song you might remember from the 80s. Uh, we Built This City on Rock and Roll. And you just have to listen to really hear what this is all about. Needless to say, this snack, this dish has inspired uh, a whole genre of products and and the number one Christmas single. So we'll put the link to that video on YouTube in the show notes because it's uh, really one of a kind. Oh, gosh. And that song has such great memories for me from my husband and I's first date because we... (gasps) Really? We did. We went to a Halloween concert and it was the top 10 worst songs of all time. You had to vote for what you thought they would be. And I believe it was either myself or my husband who voted for We Built This City. And that actually was number four. I mean, it didn't even make it into the top three. Wow. Maybe I'll play it. I think I'll play it and then roll out the sausage rolls. I think that would be kind of fun. Yes. Or you can compare the original to the sausage roll song. Yeah. There you go. Well, how'd they turn out for you as far as uh, eating? <laughs> what do you think about these sausage rolls? Oh, yeah. Back, back to the bake. Here we go. Yeah. 
So Andrea, this recipe, although it wasn't necessarily hard, I found myself doing a ton of math on this recipe. And I just want to call that out because I think there's some ways that you can either have the recipe or maybe even take it down further than that because it makes a lot. And I think that might be a little deceptive just if you read through the recipe at face value. It was for me. What was the listed serving size? It was 12 rolls. And to me, a dozen okay. didn't seem too out of control. Mm -hmm. But if you look a little bit closer, they're eight centimeter rolls. So that's getting up there. And you are stuffing them with a lot of filling. So these turn into a really substantial meal or snack very quickly. Mm -hmm. You start off with your sausage mince and your pork mince and your chicken mince. For whatever reason, I could not find chicken mince. I used turkey. I don't think that was too drastic of a, of a substitution there. Yeah, agreed. Some onion, some carrot, white breadcrumbs, pepper, Worcestershire sauce, some hot English mustard. Now, Andrea, I was thrilled to be able to open my freezer and pull out one of the puff pastries from Beretta Head. I wondered if you were using the one labeled Andrea. <laughs> well, no, we didn't label them. So I don't know whose I used. Oh, gosh. Well, if it turned out good, I'm sure it was mine. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I will give you credit. The puff pastry was absolutely a dream to work with. I was so proud of us. It rolled out perfectly. I had defrosted it overnight in the fridge. It worked very well. Oh, good. So my biggest issue with this in general was that I found the filling a little bit bland. Okay. And I think there are ways that in the future I could work around that, maybe by adding some additional spices, maybe by choosing a spicier sausage meat. Okay. They also are very rich because you have all of this meat, all of this sausage, and then your puff pastry. And so this is a very rich and filling snack right away. Oh, I agree. This to me was ended up being a lunch as opposed to a snack. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I ended up having that and still had leftovers. Yeah. I put some back in the freezer, some of the filling back in the freezer. I made six and we had them for dinner. That was the size I thought was appropriate for dinner. Okay. They were sizzling. When they came out of the oven, they smelled so great. Ugh. I know. I know. They were pretty too. They were beautiful. Yeah, that puff pastry. In fact, I think you said this last episode. Is this like a pig's in a blanket? Yeah. It's more though like a meatloaf wrapped in a puff pastry. Or what's that? Is that beef wellington? What is that meal that is the meat wrapped in puff pastry? I think it's beef wellington. I think you're right. I've never made a beef wellington, but I know what you're talking about. My husband actually said it reminded him most of like an Asian dumpling. And I agree. That particular type of filling Especially with the shredded carrots in it. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, everyone enjoyed it for dinner. I'm not sure there were clamoring for more. It might be an issue about that filling, making that a little bit more savory, pumping up the flavor there a little bit. I thought the recipe itself worked very well. Just a caution that you're making a lot of sausage roll here. Interesting. Well, I use this recipe more as a guideline than... <laughs> Then an instruction kit. Here's a couple of things that I did. And let me just start off by saying these were a huge hit in my house. My husband sent me two texts after he had one because he was so excited about it. Awesome. I started with my ground pork. I weighed it and I had 250 grams. Exactly. You know, the recipe calls for a thousand grams of yep. ground meat between the sausage, the pork and the chicken. Total. Yes. At that point, I just decided I was going to cut the recipe in 
quarter because that's what I had. Okay, right. So I used the 250 grams of ground pork. I used about half an onion, about half a carrot, a handful of breadcrumbs. I used the pepper, the sea salt. I sprinkled in the Worcestershire and the mustard powder. I thought it wasn't flavorful enough because I hadn't used any of the sausage, which I know has a lot of flavoring. So I threw in some red pepper flakes and some fennel seeds and a little bit of fennel powder and some Italian seasonings. All of these things that would have, yes, pumped up the flavor so nicely. Yeah, and then I I mixed it all up really good. And yeah, it absolutely reminded me of a meatloaf uh, sans the egg. Yes, yeah, exactly. I'm also used to throwing like a shredded Parmesan cheese into the mixture. I didn't do that here, but I have to say I think that would be lovely if you decided to do that. Okay. I skipped the chopped parsley. I didn't have any on hand. Um, (laughs) So I think that would have been pretty and maybe added a little bit of flavor, but I skipped that. I was running out of time. So even though I had my brand new skills and knew how to make my own puff pastry, I actually went to the grocery store and bought some frozen. Sure. I just used uh, the regular puff pastry that you can buy in the freezer section and I pulled out one sheet because the recipe calls for four sheets. Yes. So even with, you know, using one sheet and then cutting all those ingredients by a quarter, I ended up with three huge sausage rolls. Yeah. I made basically what looked to me like an enormous pop tart. (laughs) I rolled it out into a big rectangle. I piled the filling on and then I folded the bottom up and covered it and then I cut it into thirds. Yes. And then I sealed the edges because I didn't want it all oozing out. Okay. I scored the tops. I brushed the egg on. I used my Trader Joe's everything bagel seasoning on top. Like I said, this recipe was a guideline for me. When those came out of the oven, just like you said, they were sizzling. They were popping. Mm -hmm. Yes. I did them. So it's 210 degrees Celsius. That's 410 degrees Fahrenheit. And when they first came out of the oven, my husband was nearby and he was like, what is that? (laughs) He had just finished making his lunchtime sandwich. And I said, oh, those are sausage rolls. And he said, why did you let me make my sandwich when I could have had that? (laughs) I said, well, I didn't know if they were going to turn out. And, you know, I want to take a picture before we eat them and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I took my pictures and then he said he was going to take one to work. And that's, you know, I got the first text like five minutes later from his car. I think he was just like, oh my (laughs) gosh, I couldn't, I couldn't even wait. This thing was so good. And I had mine right then as well. It was so wonderful. I loved it. It was flaky. It was flavorful. I just loved everything about it. So the third one, I popped into a little lunch container. And this is actually where I hearken back the most to it being in the Harry Potter books, is I thought, what a perfect lunch. Although I do think you'd have to eat it warm. I don't think it would be good cold. I think that's absolutely essential. Yes. Popped it into a little glass container and I thought, you know, I'm going to give this to my daughter. They do have a microwave at their school and she can just heat it up tomorrow. Tomorrow came and I was wondering what to do for my breakfast and I remembered that sausage roll. (laughs) I thought, you know, it's just not going to be as good in a microwave. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I took it and I reheated it in my oven. So I have to say on day two, it was equally as good. So I had it for lunch on day one, for breakfast on day two. I loved it. My husband loved it. It was super easy. Of course, I used the ready-made puff pastry. Yep. I think this is just a fabulous little keeper. When I had it for breakfast on day two, 
again, I would say mine was the size of a, a regular size Pop-Tart. Okay. It was about how I made it, but a lot thicker. You know, it had a lot more filling in it. Sure. Yes. Yes. Taller. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I had it for breakfast, I sliced it into four pieces, four equal pieces. And I thought to myself, you know, if I serve this at a party, I think that's what I would do. Yeah. Because then it was almost more like little fingers. Yeah, exactly. So instead of sausage rolls, I think I turned it into sausage fingers. But I loved this recipe, and I certainly did not grow up with sausage rolls, but I think these things are fabulous. Well, I'm glad that you took it as a template, and maybe that's what I need to do here as well. Because, again, the filling was just nothing that that I could get too excited about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, if you are using, as Andrea mentioned, the packaged puff pastry comes, is it two to a box? Two or four to a box? The one that I bought came two to a box. Okay, excellent. If you are using your own, for example, Andrea, that one that we made was the equivalent of two. So that might be a standard recipe. Good point. Yeah. I should add in that if you buy the prepared puff pastry, you do need to let it set out and thaw for a little bit. So I let mine That's right. thaw. I let my one sheet thaw for about 40 minutes. And then I did use my rolling pin to roll it out a little bit and make it a little bit bigger and make sure it had some good, you know, stretch to it so that when I put the filling in, I'd be able to close it easily and, and not have it crack. Awesome. Well, sounds like you have found another winner, another English import to the greater Olympia, Washington area. I know. My collection of classic English bakes just continues to grow. (laughs) And I do believe that has set you up perfectly for our next (laughs) bake-along. Thank you so much. Speaking of classic English bakes, we have another one this week from a classic English food writer. You have heard us speak about Nigel Slater before. He has written a lot of cookbooks and some kind of food-related memoirs. I've talked in the past about reading his Christmas Chronicles, which is a lovely book about remembrances with recipes that I read at the holiday season. And we are going to do Nigel Slater's Seed Cake. This appears in several classic volumes, including both David Copperfield and Jane Eyre. Now, Andrea, had you heard of Seed Cake aside from their appearance in those books before? No, I'm a huge Jane Eyre fan, and I had never heard of Seed Cake. And looking at the ingredients, it's so simple. Yes. I mean, it's just an equal amount of butter and caster sugar, then three large eggs, a teaspoon of caraway seeds, some self-raising flour. Of course, I will be following my instructions of taking all-purpose flour and turning it into self-rising flour just by adding a little bit of baking powder and some salt. Yeah. Some ground almonds and uh, two tablespoons of milk. And that's it. So perhaps other than the caraway seeds, I think most of our listeners might even have all of these ingredients in their pantry. Yes. And that was one of our 19 for 19 was to use ingredients we had on hand. So I'm really excited that this is one I can do that with. No going to the store required. Quick question on the ground almonds. Are you going to grind almonds yourself, like in your blender or your food processor, or do you buy ground almond meal? Hats off to Waitrose, who has a very reliable ground almond product that I buy all the time and just keep in a large kind of pound size I can buy it. Yeah, and I get mine from Trader Joe's too, so I... Yeah, exactly. I don't do mine, but I'm guessing you could do your own as long as you could get it fine enough. Mine is definitely more the texture of a little bit grittier than flour, but not much more. I think if you are going to grind it yourself, you want to make sure you don't overgrind and turn that into almond butter. Yeah, good point. So if you've never followed a Nigel Slater recipe before, this is kind of a classic 
like Nigel, he does not give you a lot of instruction. This, of course, as Andrea just mentioned, has very few ingredients and seems very straightforward. But I think one caution is important here, and that's what he says in the second part of this. He says you might be very tempted to say, there's only one teaspoon of caraway seed here. I'm going to add a tablespoon of caraway seed. But he says the delight of the seed cake is that it has a very subtle flavor. That's a good caution for me. You know, I do <laughs> I do tend to think, well, if a teaspoon's good, maybe a <laughs> tablespoon's better. And it's so funny. I thought I read that recipe really carefully, and I did not notice that caution. So, <laughs> Well, he just thinks that caraway seeds, of course, it might just be a personal taste thing. But he says if you get too many, they start tasting a little medicinal. Got it. And that might not be pleasing to you. If you just use a little, if you're not familiar with caraway seed, they have a nice kind of licorice flavor. Yeah. I like that flavor. I'm looking forward to this cake. Because it is Literary Bakes Month, we thought we would read a little bit from a book that we are cooking from, and that will be David Copperfield. So let's do that. All right. So the seed cake appears in Chapter 42. I was never so happy. I never was so pleased as when I saw those two sit down together side by side. As when I saw my little darling looking up so naturally to those cordial eyes, as when I saw the tender, beautiful regard with Agnes cast upon her. Miss Levine and Miss Clarissa partook in their way of my joy. It was the pleasantest tea table in the world. Miss Clarissa presided. I cut and handed the sweet seed cake. The little sisters had a bird-like fondness for picking up seeds and picking its sugar. Miss Lavinia looked on with benign patronage, as if our happy love were all her work, and we were perfectly contented with ourselves and one another. I love that setting. It's been years since I've read David Copperfield, but what a great book that is if you haven't read it about Victorian England. As you were reading that, it immediately called back to mind another book that I loved. Uh, did you ever read The Little Princess with the character Sarah Crew? I have not read that. Oh my gosh. I want to say it's a classic. I believe it's by Mary Burnett, Mary Hodges Burnett, Frances Hodges Burnett. It was one of my favorite books when I was growing up, and it was about a very wealthy young girl who was put into a private school, and then her father was missing and presumed dead and could no longer pay her tuition, at which point she was sent up to the attic and turned into a maid for the school. So classic. They're always getting sent up to the attic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The descriptions of the tea tables, you know, as you're reading that passage from David Copperfield, it just reminded me how when you read a passage like that in a book, it can just immediately transport you. I mean, for me, that's what food in a book does. The smells, the taste, yes, the setting, the table, the tablecloths, the candles, it's all of it. It just really puts me in that room. And I love when an author does that. Absolutely. And you had mentioned last episode too, when we introduced this theme month that Food does that so well. It's such a nice trick by the author to tell you what you need to know about a character. And I think in this instance with the seed cake, it appears to be a very humble cake, which is a word I would ascribe to both David Copperfield and to Jane Eyre. So I think it fits in very well with that. Yeah, and I think it was popular in the J.R. Tolkien books as well, in The Hobbit. So I can just imagine, Oh yeah, you know, Sam and Frodo with their little seed cake tucked into their knapsack. So I love that idea. All right, so we hope that you bake along with our seed cake this week's Bake Along from Nigel Slater. We will put a link to that recipe in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 119. And we will also have that on our Facebook group, Preheated. Stefan, did you notice that as soon as we decided to feature literary bakes as one of our monthly themes, you always were noticing food and recipes in almost every book that you were reading? <laughs> 
Yes. And I'm not talking food memoirs or cookbooks. I'm thinking of the novels I read and how often authors use recipes and meals to give us insight into the characters and their lives. Last week in episode 118, I mentioned Finishing Delicious, the novel by Ruth Reichel, which revolved around a secret recipe for gingerbread. Mm. Luckily, at the very end of the book, she had the actual recipe. Oh. <laughs> Thank goodness. I didn't have to stress out thinking that, you know, there was this amazing recipe that I just couldn't get my hands on. Yeah. And is it making gingerbread one of your 19 for 19, Andrea? It is. I was all set on using a colonial gingerbread recipe that listener Heather posted in our Facebook group. Mm -hmm. But now that I have this new recipe, I'm not sure which one I'll actually end up choosing. An interesting side note, both gingerbread recipes are published in the Boston Globe. So I wonder if gingerbread is more of an East Coast thing. But I digress. In Reichel's novel, there really wasn't a secret ingredient per se in her gingerbread. It was more of a secret recipe, and that's because it included some unusual methods for making it. Ooh, tell me more about that. It wasn't anything, you know, major. It was more like she would use whole spices and grind them. So, for example, whole peppercorns, whole cardamom seeds, and cinnamon sticks. And, you know, she would take those and grind them instead of using powdered cinnamon, powdered pepper, powdered cardamom. Okay. So it sounds like some work, but possibly worth it. Yeah. I'll be sure to report back after I make it and let you all know. What I also started noticing in the books I was reading were not just secret recipes, but also secret ingredients in recipes. I love that title because if they're secret, then how do you make it or even know what you're eating? Oh, good point. So... Maybe a better phrase is that these recipes have a, you won't believe I used this type of ingredient. Ah, you mean like mayonnaise in a cake. Exactly. Have you ever done that? I've heard it makes a super moist chocolate cake, but mm, I don't know. Yeah, I actually have. So the chocolate mayonnaise cake gained popularity in the Second World War when eggs and butter or oil were at a premium. Of course, mayonnaise is a combination of eggs and oil, so it kills both of those birds with one stone. I did think it added a moistness to the cake, but I'm not sure it was saving money anymore because eggs and oil are fairly inexpensive ingredients on their own these days. Yeah, good point. I just finished a book called The One in a Million Boy by Monica Wood, and it was a great novel. It told the story of a relationship between a 104-year-old woman, and she was telling her life story and her secrets to an 11-year-old boy. So one of her secrets is a secret ingredient cake. The secret ingredient is, I'm going to give a spoiler alert if you haven't read the book, tomato soup. Aha! Well, I've heard of both the book and the tomato soup cake. Oh, you have? Okay. I had never heard of a tomato soup cake. And to be honest, that sounds kind of awful to me. (laughs) It's actually a good preheated recipe because it falls into our desperation category, a way to make cake when the pantry gets bare. The tomato soup, again, adds moistness and flavor, and I'd like to think a serving of vegetable. Oh, yeah. You're always trying to get your veg serving in. (laughs) Indeed. Well, I'll post a link in the show notes to the author Monica Wood's recipe for tomato soup cupcakes. Or if you're feeling more ambitious, how about a chocolate tomato cake with mystery ganache? That comes from the amazing Rose Levy Berenbaum's book, Rose's Heavenly Cakes. Oh, delicious. Now that you mention it, chocolate and canned tomato soup is starting to sound kind of intriguing. (laughs) Stefan, our next mystery ingredient is one I think you'll especially enjoy. What's another way you can think of to add texture, tenderness, and tang to a chocolate dessert? 
Hmm. Well, zucchini springs to mind immediately for the first two, and I do have a chocolate cake recipe that incorporates grated zucchini, but I have an even better one that incorporates sauerkraut. That's right. It's your old favorite sauerkraut. Now, according to an article I read in USA Today, sauerkraut can add moisture and tenderness, a slight acidic tartness, which is similar to what buttermilk or sour cream would do, and finally, a nice textural element, like if you would use coconut in your cake. And the recipe I have is from that doyen of domesticity, Heloise. I once made it for my then-veggie-averse niece, Lauren, and she had no idea what she was eating. She just loved it. <laughs> Sorry, Lauren, if I've just ruined your fond memories of that delicious chocolate cake I served you when you were six. <laughs> but in my opinion, the fact that you can make tasty chocolate cake, it's just one more reason to keep some sauerkraut in the fridge. And Andrea, I'm recalling that back in episode 96 when you interviewed Julia O'Malley, who is an award-winning Alaska food journalist, she mentioned a few secret ingredients, didn't she? That's right, she did. I remember she talked about replacing an egg with mayonnaise or using, you know, boxed cake mix and some Sprite. Yes. I mean, the Alaskans just have to get creative when it comes to using what they have on hand. And Stefan, you and I have even been a bit adventurous with some of our ingredients, do you remember back in episode 81 where we made that tahini chocolate banana soft serve ice cream? Oh, how could I forget? It only had four ingredients, but that combination of tahini with the cocoa, banana, and maple syrup made such a smooth and silky, luscious ice cream. It was a great one. Yeah. Listeners, a few of our other favorite recipes with mystery ingredients are the chocolate bark with chipotle and almonds from back in episode 12. And then more recently, listener Jennifer recommended a salted pistachio brittle, and we talked about that in episode 108. Now, Jennifer added hatch chili powder to spice hers up, and I couldn't find that, so I used just my regular old chipotle powder, and it was amazing. Andrea, you know what would be fun? To serve a dessert with one of those mystery ingredients, and then end dinner with a game of Guess the Mystery Ingredient. Oh, yeah! While you could probably detect chipotle chili, I bet no one would guess canned tomato soup or sauerkraut. I bet you're right. Listeners, we'd love to hear about your favorite mystery ingredient desserts. Whether it's a recipe you've made or something you've eaten and then been surprised to learn about, drop us a note at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or post in our Facebook group, Preheated. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning and next week we'll find out if our seed cake is ripe for reintroduction or best left in the past. We'll also introduce a sweet treat inspired by one of our favorite childhood books that's perfect for Easter morning. And finally, Stefan will fill us in from Copenhagen in our ever-popular Globetrotting Gourmet segment. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please do tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening, and sweet dreams.
Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. And speaking of baking along, this week we made the Sasha's... <clears throat> That's a tough one to say. 